Morning, good afternoon, good evening. This is Firoz Manji from the Raja Press. Welcome to Organizing in the Time of COVID-19. Uh, it's great to have you join us today uh, for a really, I think, going to be a really interesting show. Um, our two guests, our first guest is Sophia Edwards. Uh, she's an uh, associate professor of sociology and black studies at Providence College. Her areas of research and teaching include post-colonial sociology, colonialism, labor movements, race and racism, international development and political sociology. She recently wrote a brilliant paper, uh, Racial Capitalism and COVID-19 for Monthly Review, uh, in which she asked, how can we understand the unremitting super exploitation of black and other non-white racialized labor in the core, that is in the heart of capital uh, and in the periphery? Dominant approaches to capitalism are not enough, she argues. It is urgent that we anchor our analysis in the concept of racial capitalism, which helps us better understand the forces driving the global political economy. Key, key questions, in my opinion. To interview her, um, I'd like to welcome back a uh, um, great friend uh, and a former uh, interviewee uh, here on, on uh, uh, organizing in the time of COVID. We have David Austin. He's, as many of you will know, the author of Dread Poetry and Freedom, Linton Quincy Johnson and the Unfinished Revolution, published by Pluto. Uh, Fear of a Black Nation, Race, Sex and Security in 60s Montreal. And the editor of Moving Against the System, the 1968 Congress of Black Writers and the Making of Global Consciousness. He's the winner of the 2014 Casa de las Americas Prize. He's a producer of a three-part radio program on CLR James, something all of you have to watch and listen to, uh, the, the, the Black Jacobin. So um, a very, very warm welcome uh, to, to my guests. Welcome, David. Welcome, Sophia. Uh, and Sophia, relax. This may not be the first time that you're appearing on a on an interview show, but I am certain it won't be the last time. Uh, David, over to you. I'm certain that I'm certain you're very right, Pearls, too. And um, so, so wonderful. Um, I'm happy to be here, and I'm happy to doing this with with Sophia because you know, I read this wonderful article that she wrote in Montreal a couple of months ago, and immediately I emailed Pearls and I said we need to do something. Right? Um, wonderful remarkable and very timely article right on racial capitalism but with our particular context so i want to begin by asking you a question what made it what motivated you to write this wonderful article like what was the impetus Mm -hmm. Well, thank you so much, Rose and David, for having me here to talk about this article today. And uh, because as we will talk, I'm sure in the conversation, we'll see that this is still so urgent and still so ongoing and mm -hmm. around the world. And so it's a really, really important discussion. And I'm glad that we are having it on this platform. So the funny thing about this article is it's, it really started as a very short piece that I wrote in a rage. It was really rage writing at the start of the pandemic because I was hearing all of these reports coming out that, 
you know, black people were being disproportionately, um, they were contracting and dying disproportionately from COVID-19 and the media and so many academics just seemed surprised by that. And to me, it was so obvious that A, that this would be what would be happening and also the roots of why this is happening. So it was particularly infuriating that the dominant narrative that we were seeing was that somehow this is not the predicted outcome that we should be surprised by this. And so I think a part of what was going on was it was a very presentist approach where the impulse was to focus on the here and now and what the data looks like in this present time. But as we know, none of this is new. And so I wanted to draw attention to how deeply historical and how deeply structural the roots of what we are seeing in terms of the racial groups that are being disproportionately affected by the pandemic is today. And I also wanted to draw attention to the fact that these patterns that we're seeing in the US, in Canada, and in Europe are not confined to those artificial borders. Because in the same way that coronavirus didn't confine itself to geographic boundaries and artificial borders, this, the architecture, the infrastructure of the economy is global. And so we have to pan out our view to examine what is going on and how what is going on abroad, quote unquote, intersects with and overlaps with and is really dynamically connected to what we call domestic or just within North America and, and Europe, European countries. So for me, that holistic analysis, you know, to understand the history, the global political economy, race and gender and labor is that really essentially located in the black radical tradition. So I try to bring that analysis into our understanding of what we are seeing, these inequalities that are now laid so bare for everyone to see in this pandemic. So let's let's so let's let's go back to something you said just said then because you know we talk about race and blackness anti-blackness, right? They're usually particularized, right? But you use the framework of racial capitalism to talk about this international, transnational phenomena that you just described. So why why racial capitalism? Mm -hmm. So the term racial capitalism, I guess it's now being more used more and more now in the social sciences. I think it was really popularized by Cedric Robinson in his famous work, Black Marxism. Um, but really, he even um, popularized the term. He didn't make, he didn't invent the term. It was South African activists and intellectuals who were, um, you know, theorizing racial capitalism, and he picked it up and and sort of popularized it. Um, but essentially, I'm using that term to draw attention to the fact that race and racism and capitalism are intricately connected, right? Mm -hmm. And there is a tendency within, you know, leftist circles and also within academia to strip away the racial, the, the, the analysis of race in how we understand 
not just the origin and development of capitalism, but how it is continuously unfolding, even in our contemporary period today. And so the idea that we have capital who are profit-driven, there, there is a profit maximization motive that continues to structure the global economy, right? Um, that that this doesn't have any racial pattern to it is is to ignore right a, a large um is it is really to ignore the foundations of capitalism and what is going on and so i was using this term to draw attention to that that not all bodies are extracted from in equal ways in the capitalist system we have to consider race, we have to consider gender, we have to consider colonialism in order to understand how profit continues to be accumulated even within the pandemic, even as things have shut down. How is the economy still running, the economy? How is profit still being made? How are billionaires still able to make not just millions, but billions during a pandemic? Right? What is that predicated upon when supposedly we're on the stay-at-home orders and we're we're you know we're supposed to be at home isolated? It is because not everybody is at home, and who are the people who are forced to, compelled to, still continue to go out to work, to continue to generate profits? It is racialized, people racialized as non-white, black workers, Latinx workers, indigenous people, right, who continue to have to provide food, to provide services and so on. So the term racial capitalism really just draws attention to the fact that capitalism is not colorblind and it's not race neutral. It is deeply it foundation racism and race is foundational to capitalism and how the economy continues to to function. Mm. So you then make a connection between racial capitalism and our contemporary moment, which of course we can essentially describe as a COVID moment, right? But I mean that's that's you know COVID has dramatically shaped our lives. It's demonstrated to us that you know that the, the, the borders, the borders, as you said, that we understand to be fixed and ossified are actually very porous, right? Mm -hmm. So, could you talk a bit more about the relationship between racial capitalism and 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 and, and the COVID pandemic and how it has affected people differently in different contexts? Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So, on the one hand, we can think of why is it that we see these disparities in the health outcome. <clears throat> and uh, when we think of the black workers and other workers of color who are disproportionately affected, and we want to ask ourselves, well, why? Why is this the case? Well, why are these workers, what conditions are these workers in? And is that new, right? And so when we look at the industries that continue to function throughout the pandemic, Amazon, food production, um, the health services sector, or these areas, right, that had continued to what we call what we call essential workers. Those workers were disproportionately black and brown workers, and 
that is not a new thing where because we have we are in a system of racial capitalism where certain jobs right have been relegated to certain racial groups um and therefore undervalued and they are underpaid and exposed to the most um difficult working conditions the most hazardous working conditions that stems all the way back to the period of racial slavery and and the transatlantic slave trade and the exploitation of people the racialization of people in order to extract from them and so that is the link i draw between you know the economy what you know how this economy is structured which is racial capitalism um, and the types of people who get disproportionately impacted because they don't have the luxury of staying home um, during, you know, or, or being able to protect themselves and their families from the disease. So, could you talk a bit more? Could you talk a bit more about you know what that has meant concretely? Because you give a few examples in your article, and you know, it's kind of you know rich in detail and content, but it's also sweeping in another sense. So you go from Canada to New York, to the Caribbean, the African continent. So can you, can you talk a bit about some of those examples in terms of how we've seen it play itself out in relation to COVID? Yeah, absolutely. So one of the prominent examples I use in the, in the piece, for instance, is the fact that um, farm workers, right, who kept food on the shelf during the pandemic, it is farm workers. Farm workers were disproportionately coming from outside of the United States and Canada and, and Europe. They were coming from the global periphery or peripheralized countries, Jamaican workers, for instance, in the height of the pandemic, were going to the United States to farm, to, 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 to you know, pick, crops and so on. And they were leaving Jamaica. Jamaica at the time, right in the early in the early months of the pandemic, had actually done a great job in response to the pandemic, right? Uh, they closed schools, um, restrictions were placed on movement, everyone um, you know, you had to wear a mask and people generally obeyed those orders of having to wear your mask and so on. And so the rates of COVID contraction and COVID death in Jamaica was at the time quite low. And then they were leaving to go to the United States, which had, you know, the worst case of, of, of COVID in the world. And so they were leaving the relative security of their home country. They were compelled to, right? to go abroad, to go to the United States, to work on these farms and be exposed to very poor working conditions, cramped housing, no, um, little to no personal protective equipment and so on, thereby exposing them more to the disease, to contracting and spreading the disease. And this is an example of how Profit accumulation, capital accumulation continues to depend on workers who are 
Black and racialized and workers from the periphery to continue to generate those profits. And in that, in doing so, those people now are more vulnerable. They're in a more vulnerable position, more because they're being super exploited. Their lives are not valued in the way that other white lives are valued. So in some senses, we can talk about how that sense of alienation within their respective countries. You mentioned using the example of Jamaica, the economic alienation, right? precisely because of how capitalism functions in terms of development and underdevelopment has led to this, these dynamics of racial capitalism in, in these big metropolitan cities like New York, um, you know, the, you know, and, 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 and Northern countries like Canada, United States, et cetera. Um, so, I want to go back for a second because you, you know, one of the things that's really interesting about this article is that I don't want to say you reintroduce political economy, right? But in a sense, you know, just given the nature of how race class dynamics are discussed these days, and particularly race, right? You know, what was refreshing about reading your article is that there's like there's this this balance between an analysis of race, analysis of capitalism, analysis of underdevelopment, right? This, in other words, it's kind of old school framework of political economy. Why do you think that's important? You know, why is that such a, 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 a crucial part of your, your analysis? Mm -hmm. I think it's really important because those thinkers, the thinkers that I'm drawing on um, from- Who are some of the thinkers, for example? Like who are some of the- Yeah, so like uh, Walter Rodney, mm -hmm. Uh, CLR James, Eric Williams, Claudia Jones. These thinkers in the Black radical tradition, or as we were talking, uh, as a well, Caribbean radical tradition, right? They were really thinking about the intersections of race and class and gender in the global capitalist system and how that impacts Black and black populations and people of color, but also national trajectories, right? Where countries, the level of development, level of underdevelopment, global inequalities that we see today. And so I just find that in, you know, this is just such a powerful set of theorists to turn to because they, they provide a holistic framework for understanding these different concepts simultaneously because they show how they are interconnected and, and the history of how they came to be interconnected. Um, and so I find that to be a really powerful tool in, in analyzing the economy and the fallout of the pandemic. Well, you mentioned two thinkers, so I'm going to ask you to say a little bit about both of them. Because in the article, you, you, when you mentioned Walter Rodney, you mentioned how Europe underdeveloped Africa. Um, what particularly about that book and Walter Rodney's analysis of um, uh, dependency, underdevelopment? And I should tell the audience, like, this is what we, we met at a conference actually on Walter, on, on Walter Rodney, right? Organized by the Walter Rodney Foundation. That was, was that last year? My sense of time in terms of the pandemic. It could have been two years ago. Yes, I think it was just before the pandemic. Yeah. Yeah. So, 
you know, why, you know, what make, what is so valuable about Walter Roddy? I mean, especially when we keep in mind that Walter Roddy was a historian, right? You know, but he could have easily passed for a political economist, you know, in his own right, too. In fact, in many senses, he was. So could you talk a bit about, you know, his his analysis and how that factors into yours? And then the other person I want to ask you about, I think for obvious reasons, is Claudia Jones, to say a bit about that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Walter Rodney is so powerful for thinking about this this situation that we are in currently because his the tools that he gave us is we're seeing it play out. It's still so relevant for today. Um, in this text, how Europe underdeveloped Africa, you know, he takes great care to lay out how structures of dependency have really kept African countries, Caribbean countries, in in a state of underdevelopment, even as they are tied to these more advanced, quote unquote, countries, these quote unquote industrialized countries, you know, wealthier countries, um, colonizing and imperial countries in the core. And so he, I find this to be so relevant because, for instance, going back to the example of the Jamaican workers and the Jamaican state, which at the initial stages of the pandemic was able to really do a good job mitigating and controlling the spread of the virus, it almost didn't matter how well the Jamaican government was able to contain the spread in the in the early stages. Of course, importantly, they saved many lives, mm-hmm. but people still had to leave to 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 um be, to to find employment elsewhere, and that is a a structure of dependency, right? Being dependent on because the economy cannot absorb these workers. They have there's no there's high unemployment in Jamaica. And, and in the examples as well. Um, Rodney talks about, you know, how foreign loans, foreign direct investment, these are all structures that are meant to keep in place the system of um, hierarchy in order to extract from the, the, the colonies, former colonies, right, the periphery. And those things are still in place. If we look at relief packages, COVID relief packages from the IMF um, that countries have been trying to access. They are still conditional and they are conditional on rolling back public investments in healthcare, in service. So it's still a story of being dependent on foreign capital, being dependent on foreign markets. Mm -hmm. Tourism is another example. Can a country that really depends on tourism really open back up in the COVID era, in the era of variants that keep popping up, new variants, new more, you know, um, contagious and deadly variants? I just, I just, because you, because you, you know, not to stop you, but because you mentioned tourism, you know, I, I meant to begin by talking about. I mean, there are three sites right now that we can that factor very well into your analysis. One of them is South Africa, the other one is Cuba, and the other one is is Haiti. Right? And of course, we're seeing in the case of Cuba, right, 
under the pandemic, under the embargo, um, you know, the impact that it's had internally because of the dependency on largely on tourism, tourism, which is again tied to the embargo. And of course, there are other internal factors um, um, contributing to the destabilization. Um, but, you know, that, but those are those are internal questions to Cuba. But, but clearly, the major factor that has read, led to this recent destabilization is the, is, is the reality that the you know you know the same dynamics of dependency, underdevelopment, and in this case, the specific dynamics of the embargo. But like when you mentioned tourism, you know. Um, in relation to Cuba, a country that has, you know, in other ways and forms has exercised a degree of autonomy and independence and still finds itself in the situation that it finds itself in today. So I just thought that was like a like a really kind of cogent example of, of, of what you're what you're describing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And that, you know, Walter Rodney, for instance, says this that there is there is one global capitalist economy, right? And and we're all tied into that. And so we're seeing how this manifest is manifesting itself in Cuba right now. And and Barbados, Jamaica, other countries that also depend on tourism, where the lockdowns, the the you know tours and all of the the entire industry, mm -hmm. right, that depends on people traveling, depends on foreign um you know wealthier uh clients so and so to come to the to come into their borders that this is really unsustainable and you cannot you cannot your economy your your people the livelihoods of people um it's it's so fickle when you're in such a situation of dependency and with COVID 19 now we are seeing this just very 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 clearly as countries have had without a vaccine without easy access to the vaccine or as easy as in other parts of the world where people are hoard, where countries are hoarding vaccines and so on where it is difficult to get vaccines are you really realistically able to go back to the way the economy was structured before you know prior to the pandemic mm -hmm. that remains an open question it's a fundamental question mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and claudia jones and you know, you, you talk about Claudia Jones and a, and a kind of conception of super exploitation. Can you say a bit about that? Absolutely. So Claudia Jones and this, uh, you know, has really, I think, brought, uh, reminds us and, and highlights that it is not only about race and class, but also about gender. And she talks about the triple oppression that black women workers face as workers who are even more extremely exploited in, in the global capitalist system. And we see this in, in the pandemic as well as uh, workers in the service sector who are predominantly women, right? And, and also women in, in essential services, you know, being disproportionately impacted that dimension, I think, is less talked about than the racial dimension um, of, of the pandemic, the intersection of race and class and gender. I think, well, at least we've seen, I think we've seen less of those analyses. But th this is where Claudia Jones is so powerful because 
she and other Marxist feminists remind us that there are multiple layers to this and they intersect. And so we have to understand um, how these race, class, and gender dynamics coalesce to affect some people more than others. And there's an international dynamic to that, obviously, too, because as we see, I'm, I'm here in Montreal and you're there in Providence, Rhode Island. And we know that in, in the US and Canada and the UK, many of the frontline workers, many people that work in, in the caring industry are women mm -hmm. from the Caribbean as well as from the Philippines, I should add, too. Mm -hmm. you know, so we see how like the, the international kind of circuits that, were, that, 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 that feed into this movement and almost force migration of another kind mm -hmm. uh, are, are, are tied to gender and race in this, in this context, too. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, absolutely. And their framework is always reminding us, too, that central to all of these analysis is and analysis is that there is domination, continual externalized domination happening of people in other parts of the world, right? So imperialism and colonial colonial logics continue to drive pushing people out of their home countries into such um, care, the care that these kinds of jobs, care industry, healthcare mm -hmm. workers, frontline workers, these as how they get defined, but mm -hmm. they're not valued in the same way um, as white workers. Absolutely. So there's there's an interesting, we'll say tension for lack of a better word, in, in some of your analysis. We think about, take two kind of towering Caribbean intellectual figures, CLR James, who in the Black Jacobin says the race question is subsidiary to the class question, but that, that you cannot neglect race, right? Um, although you cannot make it fundamental. On the other hand, you have Sylvia Winter, and it depends on which Sylvia Winter you're listening to, uh, listening to or, 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 or reading and at what moment, who actually agrees with James at some point, and then also perhaps down the road says, well, it's like the superstructure that shapes the base. Where do you, where, where, where do you, you know, because, because you're basically talking about racial consciousness in relation to classic capitalism. And, um, you know, you talk about the wages of whiteness um, that Du Bois talks about, and um, that, you know that David Rodiger and others have written about. So you know. So yeah. So where you know how would you sort of you know, you know, what's your configuration of where these you know these things fit? I mean, I think you've probably talked about that already. Yeah, no, this is a really interesting question because I think it goes back to sort of what we call the Black radical tradition, mm -hmm. which is actually very diverse. Mm -hmm. And although they all would agree that race is central and that we have to analyze race and we have to, um, you know, include this in our frameworks and our, our understandings of the global political economy, the ways in which they analyze, the ways in which they theorize the relationship between race and capitalism is quite different. So as you said, you know, um, we have uh, more people who are, you know, hew more to sort of the class analysis and, and, and race is important, but secondary to that. And then we have uh, others who, you know, even like Cedric Robinson, right, who says like race, actually racism predates uh, capitalism, that it was mm -hmm. a, 
elemental form in, in feudalism and it got innovated upon and transferred and, and, and exported to the rest of the world in, 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 as capitalism developed. Mm -hmm. um, so I think there are many, many arguments about the precise relationship between race and capitalism and, and also questions around which came first racism and, or, or capitalism. And so we have multiple arguments about that. But I think for me, the point is to, is, is to understand race, racialization, racism and capitalism and how they are into, how they get interconnected and, and manifest in, 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 in different ways. And so, you know, racialization and creating races was and is a way to dispossess and to extract different levels of surplus value from different groups of people. And, and that this went hand in hand with capitalism, to me, says that they are mutually constitutive. They reinforce each other at this point. And so, um, you know, added to that, we cannot really understand uh, racism and racialization with and without imperialism and colonialism they went and they went together and so to me i i i i see them as mutually constitutive and unfolding together as capitalism unfolds and so that is sort of where my i locate my analysis um, rather than trying to sort of pinpoint or rank mm -hmm. which which comes first or which is more important in the, than the other. Mm -hmm. I, yeah. I absolutely agree with you. And I would add, going back to your, your article, that um, so you talk about like this kind of psychology and the kind of this, this, this psychosocial sense of superiority superiority associated with the wages of whiteness mm -hmm. and how in essence it has been used historically as a tool of division now you know you know we've had this we had this conversation a little bit yesterday so we, we, well, we have this this set of ideas which is also quite diverse called Afro-pessimism which at its core essentially suggests that by any conception of human solidarity particularly black-white solidarity but even like the spectrum right in terms of human solidarity in relation to people of African descent is in essence, in essence an impossibility, and in particular in the case of black-white solidarity, because black-white dynamics are essentially master-slave dynamics. Mm -hmm. If I'm reading and understanding your analysis in relation to the psychology of race in terms of like notions of racial superiority, historically, they have played a role in terms of dividing folks who otherwise would be acting in common cause, or although this will be the sort of space for solidarity. Is that a fair assessment of part of your conclusion in this article? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that, um, you know, these racial ideologies, this, the white supremacist racial ideologies have been very central to dividing workers mm -hmm. and, and keeping workers apart. Uh, and the, actually the, you know, broader black radical tradition i think is really good at this is where i think they are this literature is exceptionally good at providing us with the tools to understand how these how race is related to class because they tell us that you know 
it is not necessarily the case that you would have um, solidarity within a class because people get invested in their racial groupings, right? And so you have, as Du Bois says, it's like psychological wages of whiteness and so on. But uh, also when we think about, if we think about um, CLR James's Black Jacobins, where he talks about the, the mixed race, the mulattoes, the lighter skinned um, population who are completely unreliable in the movement for liberation because they are invested in whiteness. They benefit from it, right? They uh, have a higher social status in a racially hierarchical society that is um, structured by color. And so these they tell these thinkers help us to think through those racial dynamics that are going in within class categories, but they also equally show us that it doesn't ha always happen to be the case, and it is not necessarily the case that you will have solidarity within a racial group. So it is not the case that you can count on quote unquote all black people to be on board for liberation because they all experience anti-black racism, right? That we have to think about the differences because there's a tendency to class distinction where the black middle class sees itself as separate and distinct and has its own interests quite apart from the black working classes. And so, um, you know, Walter Rodney with the, the history of the Guyanese people and his analysis of race and class in Guyanese politics, I think is really good at showing how your relationship to the structure of production intersecting with these racial ideologies can produce very complex outcomes that you cannot determine a priori just by saying that, well, racial groups are going to be in conflict with each other, or right? Because it, it, it is complicated by race class factors. And so my issue with the, you know, Afro-pessimistic, Afro-pessimism is that it doesn't have that, those nuances. It doesn't have those, um, it doesn't have room to think about those nuances within the group of people that we call black. Um, and so it's, it's, there's also no room for alliances or cross-racial solidarity within this framework. Uh, and in fact, it, I think it is quite fatalistic. It is, there's no, how do you get change? How do you, you know, it's almost like, well, what is the point? And so I think um, if we, understand the origin, the development, the unfolding of capitalism, imperialism, settler colonialism and extraction, then there are indeed intersections and entanglements in the violence that indigenous people have faced, black people have faced, Palestinians face. And so, um, the, you know, uh, this is my kind of issue with Afro-pessimism and also I think this perspective doesn't match what people are actually doing on the ground, which is building coalitions, both locally and internationally. Um, 
And so I think there's a lot of complexity that gets re reduced within that framework. Absolutely, absolutely. So I want to come back to something in relation to the Black radical tradition, because it's very much tied to what you just what you just said. The Black radical tradition, the Caribbean radical tradition. But I'm going to hold that for a second, because I can see that um, Feroz would like to, to make a comment. Mm -hmm. Yes, if you will um, allow me. Um, I, I need some help understanding this term racial capital, because th there is a problem in this. As you quite rightly point out, th what the COVID uh, pandemic has, has enabled us to see is how it operates on an imperial scale. And that is, you have a what many people have called COVID apartheid. The North having the vaccines, the South not. But if we take this one step further and say, look in a country like Kenya, where I'm from, we have apartheid internally, okay? So the middle classes, the ruling classes, the, the oligarchs all have access to vaccines, but the vast majority of people don't. So, so what we're talking about there is not a racial capital. It is capitalism operating in its finest tradition of always seeking ways to exploit. So I think this term racial capitalism is a good way of seeing the imperial relationship, but not so good for understanding the colonial relationship. That is to say, how we are ruled. And I think we have to look at the fact that that the vast majority of, of people are disenfranchised, they are made homeless and so on. And they relate to their oligarchs the same way as what you describe as racial capital of white of, of black people and in relation to to white supremacy. So I think there needs to be a little bit more um complexity to allow a more complexity to be expressed in, uh, in just your comments on that. I, I don't know that I have to jump to anybody's defense and but but I don't I don't see how that contradicts and maybe that's not what you're saying. I, I'm not sure I'm how that contradicts. Saying. Yeah I'm not contradicting I'm, I'm asking you yeah. yeah. to clarify. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I think again, this is some confusion around, so probably some confusion around the term racial capitalism because it is used so very differently in uh, different spaces. And really, in the way I'm looking at this, 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 or the, the way I define racial capitalism in the piece is that it is capitalism that could not happen right is recognizing that capitalism could not the origin and functioning ongoing functioning of capitalism is predicated upon right dispossession and um imperialism war making colonialism uh this is gendered and racialized exploitation so this is central to how capitalism uh, emerged and how it continues to function. Um, and I think, you know, the racial, because racial is in the, in the term, um, perhaps we think then that, you know, we emphasize the race aspect of it. But in the piece that I wrote, you know, I also tried to emphasize the coloniality of, of that as well, right? That, you know, 
it is it is also a manifestation of what's going on in, in other parts of the world and colonial domination and continued dom domination in, the, in that way that continues to drive these inequalities that we're seeing. Um, and I think also, you know, within within this literature that's so heavily, uh, that spends a lot of time thinking about the, the relationship between race and class, again, going back to that example of sort of Walter Rodney's and Fanon's discussion of the black middle class and the petty bourgeoisie, right? The black petty bourgeoisie and these people who occupy the state and so on. I think it still it still shows the power of that analysis because that's exactly what's going on in Kenya and in in Trinidad and Tobago and so on, where they were able to get the vaccine before everybody else. Um, some of them, right, in in the in the petty bourgeoisie class, was they were able to go at least in the case of Trinidad and Tobago, they were able to fly to Miami, get the vaccine there fly back home and the rest of the people are, are waiting. They're waiting for, they don't know if they're going to get Sinopharm or AstraZeneca. They don't know. So um, I think, yeah, I, th I think it's still consistent with what this literature is trying to capture. Well, I was just going to add that I think, you know, sometimes the word, if not, and I noticed that Rana Bose has a question. I mean, we can go to his question after. Sometimes the word betrayal is used in these contexts, right? To talk about how the leadership um, often betrays the aspirations of its followers, its constituents, etc. But you know, if we take what you just said and what Rana said, um, Rana, sorry, what Farul said, um, just said about you know the kind of internal dynamic in a place like Kenya, or you take any other country. Right? I mean, we're, we're essentially we're talking about class as a form of identity too. And if we think about class as a form of identity, we're not talking about betrayal. We're actually talking about folks working within their own particular class interests. Would you say that's a fair assessment? Well, I mean, I think at the time of Fanon, he was talking about the emerging petty bourgeoisie, the beginning of that process. But today we have an, we have oligarchs who are part of the international oligarchy. You know, they have now a close, intimate relationship with. They're not separate from. So, so they are being allowed into uh, so, the sacred spaces. That's <laughs> exactly what I'm saying. In, ter in terms of, like, they're representing their own interests, which are aligned with the interests of, of international capitalism. So, yeah. And this is in part, even though it's been framed, you know, they're in touch with a very good friend in South Africa. The last couple of days, and, and and while like the analysis might say says that this thing was sparked by you know, the protests in South Africa, sparked by Jacob Zuma, of course, you know there are deep-seated underlying class divisions, right, which are sometimes as mass mass as race in South Africa, and his arrest may have served as a spark, right, for whatever reason, right. But of course, like people are you know burning and looting, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, because like these are these are these are South Africa dispossessed. In another kind of apartheid, which is not necessarily racial apartheid. So, um, yeah. yeah, I think we're talking. There's a way of talking about race and class together that we that we that we begin to understand that classes can be another form of identity amongst the same group of people, amongst people who are otherwise described as being the same group. Mm -hmm. 
Do you want to take uh, Rose's question? I run a Rose's question. Mm -hmm. What's your opinion of the why the white working class in center countries shy away from farm work, acute healthcare, warehouse work in the globalized economy? Is it purely low wages, wage levels, or are these segments of work considered pre-industrial and, and like plantation work, like racist denying? disdain at work yeah this is a good question i think that when we look at these types of jobs we realize that they are the most the jobs with the least protections right um no unions uh the lowest of the wages the worst working conditions and we can go down the list and white workers in, in, in the United States, in Canada, in Europe, they have historically, when we look, unionized, excluded workers of color, right? And through their unions and, and so on, have been able to get a lot, a lot of protections um, that they deliberately excluded from workers of color. And so I think it is a part of um, how trade unions developed in 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 the core, you know, in core countries, and the racism of unions of trade unions, and then what then gets um, relegated to uh, racialized workers of colors, the, the workers of color, the most precarious, the most dangerous labor. Um, with least protections. Um, and so, you know, and yes, then they, they, they become to associate these jobs with, to have a disdain for those jobs because in a racialized system, in a racist system, then people, you know, they, they, they invest in the racist ideologies around who does what kind of work. But, you know, I think this is a it is a story of sort of how um, trade unions developed and what kind of jobs were then relegated to migrant labor and 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 racialized labor. I mean, some people would argue we're talking about a labor aristocracy that wants socialism at home, but still wants the colonial uh, relationships to continue. Uh, is that part of the equation? Yes, absolutely. I. I thoroughly agree with that um, and 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 we see it it's, it's continuing we see the best you know teachers unions fire unions um, all you know white worker unions uh, have been able to get so much and 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 they do it continuously on the basis of excluding other groups from getting those jobs so I'd like to go back to to something you just used earlier about the black radical tradition. And it's a continuation of a conversation we had, not here obviously, yesterday, when we were preparing for this. Now, this distinction between what, is there a difference between the black radical tradition and what we might call the Caribbean radical tradition? And if so, what are those differences? Like what, what yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and what are the implications of those differences? Yeah, no, this is a great question because I think there are there there are clear overlaps, but there are also clear this I think this differences, and um, 
I think the Caribbean radical tradition can be very useful if we think about um, how we might continue to, how we might apply those to uh, contacts outside of the Caribbean as well. So I think one really um, important thing that the Caribbean radical tradition does is it allows us to think beyond the black-white binary that dominates so much of the North American black radical traditions. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it really does offer a way of theorizing and analyzing conflicts and solidarities within class groups, but also within racial groups. So like I was saying, you know, in CLR James's Black Jacobins or in Walter Rodney's anal analysis of race and class in Guyana, they enable us to talk about working class solidarity not being a given because of racial antagonisms, but also that uh, interracial uh, solidarity within racial groups is also not a given because of class distinctions within those groups. And so, um, you know, I think I think those are really important tools that could be applied to the North American context to understand, for instance, the relationships between mm -hmm. racialized workers, more broadly speaking, beyond black workers and white workers, um, and and to understand how solidarities form and how conflicts persist and 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 things like that. Mm -hmm. I also think very importantly too is, um, for instance, Oliver Cromwell Cox gives us a way to also understand race and caste and the relationship between those two things. So it's race, class, but also race, class, and caste. And that they cannot be flattened, right? Why we cannot lump these all into like reduce them just to class dynamics, that they are distinct. And um, I think this is very important now where we see a re kind of resurgence in um, literature trying to claim that race is caste, right? Mm -hmm. um, so I think we really need to revive this book and, and to go back to this kind of analysis. And I think this is important um, probably out of the Caribbean context because of the multiracial, nature of the population right and the masses in the indian the large indian population the large african populations uh, walter rodney spends also a lot of time talking about the portuguese who were in guyana as indentured laborers and then what you know going into um mercantilism and so on so I think these are very, very um, important tools that we get from the Black, from the Caribbean radical tradition that we can use to study outside of the Caribbean um, in a way that doesn't just make it black and white. We should um, the black, white binary, but you know, I know we don't have much time. <laughs> and for how much time? How much more time do we have for us? Five, ten minutes. Five, ten minutes. Okay. So, I think it's important to say more about. Oliver Cromwell Cox, right? Born the same year as C.L.R. James from Trinidad, right? And when he writes about race, caste, and class, he's largely drawing on the American and Indian, as in the Indian subcontinent, examples. But what he says quite clearly is that part of his analysis of the Indian subcontinent, he's drawing from his socialization in Trinidad, where he's a, a 
people of African and Indian descent. But can you say more about Oliver Cornwell? Because I think a lot of people are not familiar with his work, even though he's kind of coming back into currency, you know, in more recent times over the last couple of years. And like this mammoth work of his on, on race, caste, and class is profoundly important. Yes, it's profoundly important. And it, again, has been one of these um, texts, one of these thinkers have been sidelined. I mean, he was a sociologist and we don't even read him in sociology in graduate school. You're lucky to have read, if you have read Oliver Cromwell Cox in a class and not on your own. And so, but this, this is, his work is so important in thinking um, as I said, about race and caste and class, the relationship between these things, why race is, you cannot equate race and caste as exactly the same thing um, because of how, uh, because race has its roots in capitalism, right, in, 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 in his analysis. Mm -hmm. um, but he also, in other, in his other works, talks about imperialism and how, you know, as opposed to Lenin, who theorized imperialism as a stage of capitalism, for Oliver Cromwell Cox, it is, it is foundational to capitalism, right? It is taking territories, incorporating territories, conscripting resources, um, you know, in service of profit was was the expansion of capitalism it was part and parcel of that and so um he was incredibly important in terms of how we think about these these concepts and the relationship between them uh and so i think it's unfortunate that we don't you know that people don't know him as much that we don't read him as much but he is so um his his analyses are so relevant for today I'm not sure if you have a, another question or anything you want to add, Fro, but I want to ask um, Sophia to talk about what she's currently working on, but maybe you have a question before that or any comment or anything? Mm -hmm. no, I don't think we've had any comments come in, but uh, no? so go ahead. Okay. So, you know, first of all, all of us, you know, I mean, it's an extension of your article, which was absolutely brilliant. And, you know, this has been, this has been brilliant. So, so, what are you what are you working on now i mean where where is this analysis and other research that you're doing where is it where is it taking your thinking mm -hmm. right yeah so this analysis of the covid 19 pandemic uh these questions around who is dying and how can we prevent right um this these mass uh preventable deaths is is so urgent and so looming so i wrote this piece um, but in, in, and it connects more broadly with my work because it raises questions about workers and the global political economy, about racism and sexism, and particularly my focus on states' capacities to care for people and to prevent mass deaths, and also about resistance. So my work really specifically looks at the relationship between the working class and the states in the countries, um, in peripheralized countries with respect to economic and social development. So I look at how some states are able to develop the state capacity 
to direct a kind of development that improves the quality of life of the masses while other countries are not. And I really focus in on and argue that the class movements play a central role in forcing states to build the kinds of structures and the capacity to address the needs of people. And it is not a story of, um, as some people argue, you know, colonial rulers who left good institutions in some places and bad institutions in other places. And, and uh, for me, it is about what have people done to push their states to meet their needs and to address their needs. And so um, right now I'm doing a book project on Trinidad and Tobago and working class movements in Trinidad and Tobago and the colonial, from the colonial period into after independence. Mm -hmm. Well, as I said to you yesterday, some of the best books have come out of articles and mm -hmm. the analysis of this wonderful article perhaps warrants a book. So I'm just planting that seed again and we'll see where it goes. But uh, yeah. yeah, but wonderful. Well, Sophia, Sophia has <laughs> promised that uh, a pamphlet based on her article will be uh, forthcoming. And I hope, David, you will consider writing a forward to that to encourage people to read it. Um, okay, well, we are, we are we're at five o'clock and uh, it's been an absolute fascinating discussion. I mean, I think this could go on for hours. There are many, many themes which we've only just touched upon. Um, but I want to thank you, Sophia, for not only writing the article, but, but for your, your, your insights um, and, your and the breadth of reading of, of some of the uh, best materials around, because I think um, that's often forgotten. And I, I think that was the incredible richness of, of your article. David, as always, it's been just a real pleasure to have you. And, uh, the questions that you've posed, the comments that you've made, I think are really, really wonderful. I, I hope we can have further um, panels of this kind where we can discuss these issues at greater length. Um, so I'd like to thank you, Zofia, for, for joining us today. David, thank you also. And um, to all those who have been watching, participating in different ways, uh, thank you for joining us uh, today on organizing in the time of COVID. And also, of course, under the heading of thinking freedom, which is what I think Zofia has really helped us to reflect on. So thank you. Thank you. And, uh, uh, goodbye. Take care. Thank you. Take care. Thank you. Okay.